Today we have with us Dane Whitbeck. Dane, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. So Dane founded an IoT company called Meshify uh, back in 2010 and sold it in 2016. 16, correct. And he's going to be telling us about that whole experience. And uh, let's start with the genesis of the idea. How did it start? Yeah, so like a lot of startups, it went through iterations in the beginning. We originally thought we would be a home automation company in 2010. So this was pre-Nest, hmm. um, where this was still very much um, hackers and you know forums and everything, like talking about how you could piece together stuff at home. And <laughs> we actually built a thermostat that was had no screen on it, and I plugged it up to my house, and I was controlling my thermostat from my phone in 2010. And wow. um, you know we were very excited about it. We we were building this in Houston, Texas. And my partner and I were in our mid-20s, so no connections, really, and no ability to raise the kind of money you need to do a consumer startup like that. Mm -hmm. But in our naivety, we sort of just tried anyway for a little while. Um, it didn't go super well, like trying to find funding for that type of company in Houston, Texas in 2010. Um, but what we did find was that there was a uh, distributor up in New York City who was putting in these type of building automation systems. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up sending um, some of our hardware and uh, using our back-end software we were developing up to him. And he installed about 25 buildings around New York and New Jersey to control building man to control the buildings, mm -hmm. basically do furnace control. We had temperature sensors we'd put throughout the building. And we were um, basically yeah, delivering to the landlords a report that told them they were in compliance with local regulations. Um, around how much they were heating their building. Because if mm -hmm. you actually don't have your heat on up there, you can get fined. And uh, so we had reports for them showing they were keeping their building heated, and we were able to do that and optimize the process for it. So we went through that process, and this was now getting into 2011, end of 2011. Um, we weren't making enough money to pay ourselves anything, although this was going okay, and we hadn't raised any money. So... Um, I started, kept talking to venture capitalists and, 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 um, and, you know, I basically got the feedback. This is a great small business, but it's doesn't look like maybe it has venture scale hmm. in this particular niche. Um, and so that was a little bit heartbreaking. And then at the same time we started getting inbound inquiries, uh, for consulting work. Like, Hey, you guys know IOT. Can you build us this? Can you build us this? Hmm. And we didn't really want to do that because, building a consulting company is quite a bit different than building a product company. And we didn't want to start that culture, but we also needed to eat. So there was that. So we took a couple of these contracts and we started working on them to just keep funding the company is how we looked at it. And that was when it really hit us that a lot of the features that these consulting clients needed were the same as what we were building for our building customers. Hmm. And why couldn't we put this all together into one platform that would basically be able to take in data and have a flexible user interface um, and be an IoT platform. It turns out now that sounds probably like something you've heard a million times because there's a lot of these now, uh, but in this was now 2011, 2012, um, it, was, it was still pretty new. So we got much better feedback from, um, from people like angel investors and, and venture capitalists on this idea. Mm -hmm. So we rebranded the company from what was originally House Links to Meshify in 2012. And we went into an accelerator at the beginning of 2013 called Surge Accelerator in Houston, Texas, which accepted us based on this new premise. And um, that's how we got going. And we ended up converting uh, one of those 
consulting clients into the first customer on the Meshify platform. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how we got going. What was the impetus for joining an accelerator? I think we realized that we were young and didn't know a lot, right? So I remember researching this question of, is this 6% worth it? We're not getting a lot of money for it. And I, I remember reading one post, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who was by. It's too long ago now. But it basically said, um, you know, if you go through a big company route in a normal traditional career, you end up with a network naturally. Mm-hmm. You have mentors, you have uh, customers you'll interact with, you have, um, you know, people, your coworkers. If you go the startup route, there's no natural network mm-hmm. that necessarily comes to you. And one of the benefits of joining an accelerator, as you look at the arc of your career, is you get a network, right? So you mm-hmm. get plugged in somewhere of somebody, somewhere that says, um, you know, we trusted you and here's a bunch of connections and network that you can tap for a whole lot of reasons. And so that was a compelling argument to me. Um, and I remember worrying that we were going to be like the farthest along that got <laughs> accepted. Like, we're going to be the best one there. I know it. And that wasn't the case at all. We were very much just in the mix with everybody else who had also been working very hard and had early customers and early traction. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I think. Did that network um, hypothesis end up panning out? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So we got our first enterprise customer, which is, you know, I sort of just, the first customer I talked about was a business customer, but they were about an $8 million revenue company. Mm Mm-hmm. We got a company that was 750 million revenue, like wow. a real enterprise customer, our first one from the, the network from Search Accelerator. Um, the venture capitalist who ended up putting money in our company was Mercury Fund and over mm-hmm. in Houston, and they were highly involved in Surge. Um, I don't think we would have raised money from them without having gone through Surge. Mm-hmm. So even those two things, I think, made it well worth it. Mm-hmm. On top of that, I'm still in touch with many people from that network today. Mm-hmm. Let's touch. Let's talk. Touch a little bit on uh, the round that you raised. Why? Why were you raising money? If if you just landed this this contract, I imagine the. Well, I got the order mixed up. We didn't raise the. We raised the money before we landed that contract, um, but that the contract's still not huge. It's an enterprise customer. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we. Um, you know, we got we got a pilot with them at first, right? That's how yeah. it always works. You get a pilot, then you roll it out and get it bigger. But yeah, I mean. In software in general is expensive to build. It takes a lot of human capital. There's always a list of features that you still need to build. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we were in no different than that. So mm-hmm. we were not cash flow positive. We were not paying ourselves a ton of money. Like we for sure uh, benefited and needed uh, outside capital to make the business mm-hmm. um, get where it needed to go. And did it? Did the, the, the capital provide what you thought it would provide? Yeah. I mean, we were able to hire a young team and build features much faster. We were able to build credibility with customers to Mm -hmm. say, hey, look, these other um, investors have funded the company, which when you're selling to big enterprises, they are very, very conscious of uh, the risks that they're taking on working with Mm -hmm. a startup. It's always a major hurdle in getting Mm -hmm. in with them. And so having a brand name venture capital firm behind us definitely helped us jump over that hurdle and land some pilots and customers. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I'd I don't regret um, raising outside capital for that company. Not mm-hmm. that it's right for every company, yeah. but for that company, it definitely was. We also saw over the arc of that company's life an in, a continually increase in competition. And mm-hmm. um, what was completely a blue ocean at the beginning, by the time we sold in 2016, was very much a red ocean. I mean, the blue ocean was gone. <laughs> so um, if anything, our mistake was not raising more money faster. You mentioned that venture capital isn't for everybody. What types of companies isn't it for? 
Well, venture capitalists are looking, are looking for a, definitely a certain type of company with a certain type of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, they're looking for companies that want to grow as fast as possible, as quickly as possible, and um, return and exit within seven to 10 years. And so that ends up putting a lot of pressure onto a startup to fit that mold. So if you have a company that, one, is not capable of that type of growth because the market is too small, or um, that, you know, for a number of reasons, you could not fit that mold. Um, one of those would just be the personalities of the founders. If the personality of the founder doesn't fit that mold, it's not a good fit either. Mm-hmm. So most companies are actually not, not uh, the right companies for venture capital. Um, and that's fine. I think uh, you could build fantastic companies that are not funded by venture capital. Mm-hmm. I actually, right before I came to this podcast, met a seasoned entrepreneur who's raised money from very big name I mean, tens of millions from very big name venture capitalists before, and now in his fifties said, "I'm done with that. I'm, the next company I do, I'm not going to take venture capital." <laughs> so, I mean, you got to look very. You got to have an honest conversation with yourself first and foremost, and also with your co-founders about um, what type of company are you trying to build and what are your end goals, and does venture capital fit with those? Got it. So uh, we're at 2013, 2014 ish with where you raised this round. Yeah, that's right. 20, 2013. Yeah, end of 2013 then. Yeah. So you have this, you, you basically have dry powder where you can deploy it into accelerating growth. What are some of the challenges that you're experiencing in that time? Well, we thought that recruiting would become super easy. Hmm. All of a sudden, like, I don't know, we'd be blessed or something and a halo would be around our head. And, <laughs> I don't know, resumes would come flocking or something, but that didn't happen. Um, Why do you think so? I think it's always hard to recruit people and to convince them of your vision. I mean, it takes more than just the, um, just, you know, an event like that. Yeah. They've got to understand the mission and they've got to feel that it's a good opportunity for them in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, joining a startup is not a safe thing to do. So they have to have a certain type of mentality to do mm-hmm. that. So threading the needle, especially in an early stage company and bringing in good people, it's just a hard thing to do. How did you bring in good people? Again, it was about networking. So, our chief architect, who was a key hire for us, um, was introduced to us by our venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. And he had met him at a conference and thought he was a young, smart software guy and who had told him, hey, I'm looking for a startup to join. And he connected us and we really hit it off. And he ended up being a really you know, crucial hire for us. Um, our VP of sales, another really crucial hire for us, um, actually came from a competitor. Wow. And he luckily had the insight himself to see um, being in the space that we were doing something that competitors weren't Hmm. and that there was value in it. So he actually approached us. So um, I guess in that way, we did have somebody come and knock on the door. So that was, that was a good, a good one. Our front end engineer, who was also a key hire, um, we ended up just finding through AngelList, mm-hmm. through a job posting on AngelList. We, and uh, he was very entrepreneurial and had spent time traveling. And anyway, yeah, he ended up being a great, like flexible early hire. Yeah. By flexible, I mean able to wear more than one hat and really not need to fit into a certain, you know, rigid job description, which is super important when you've got less than 10 people. Yeah. So a little bit of everything, it sounds like. Yeah. That's great. So what other, besides hiring, what other challenges were you experiencing at the time? Oh, man, I guess you can go down the list. I mean, it's always hard to um, find new customers. For us, it was particularly difficult as a platform. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't have this one 
massive use case and problem where it's like, okay, all we have to do is find 10 more companies that look exactly like the last one that we, that we landed, right? It was like, okay, we need to find companies that are manufacturers or service providers who want to, to want to build an IOT product. Mm -hmm. So it was a real challenge for us to figure out where to go to find the next customer. And if I'm really honest about it, we never cracked that nut. All the way to the end of when we sold the company, we never cracked the nut of knowing exactly where to get a next customer from, which wow. pipe to come and get a next customer from. It was always this hodgepodge of places that we got customers from. And when we sold, we had 25 to 30 enterprise customers. But it was always a struggle for us. We just couldn't, and we just couldn't tell the story of like, hey, put money in our spigot and we will pour out more customers because yeah. We really never knew exactly where the customer was going to come from. <laughs> that must have been frustrating. It was frustrating. I mean, trade shows ended up working okay for us, and that was our most reliable method. Uh -huh. It's just not a very satisfying answer to, you know, to say, well, we'll go to more trade shows. That's really interesting because um, I'd, I'd imagine that question came up during due diligence when you're selling your company. The acquirer must be must be thinking, okay, well, I'm acquiring this business. I must be able to grow it. How do they grow it? So that well, it brings up a good point. There's different types of acquirers that are acquiring a small company for a number of different reasons. Mm -hmm. One of those may be that they love your business and that they want to they want to take part in its growth. Mm -hmm. Right. This company was partially that, but that was a minority part of their thinking. The majority of their thinking was we have a use case for this technology. Mm. We know we can bring customers onto our use case. Um, so let's buy this company and make sure that we own the value that we create with, mm -hmm. um, with our customers, with our use case. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, you know, we got bought on those two theses, one that you'll grow, we'll continue to grow our own customer base uh, under our own brand. And number two, that we would uh, service them and their use case and be an in-house, um, toolkit for them to, to make their use case run. In their case, it was a insurance company mm -hmm. doing IOT to reduce risk on buildings. Very interesting. And, and, and how did you meet them? So they were a customer. So, okay, there was one thing we did oh. that really worked in our company, okay? And this is a testament to one, how bad we were at marketing, but two, if you find one thing that works, how well it can help your company, okay? When I thought to myself, where am I going to find the next customer? The cl classic question everyone tells you to ask is, well, where do your customers go naturally? Where do they go? Where do they gather? Where do they congregate? And how can you get in front of them in that spot? And I thought to myself, well, the only place my customers go is probably to Google searching for other platforms like mine. And so by the time I did this, which was 2014, I said that we moved from a blue ocean to a red ocean. This was sort of when we were in the pinkish range or whatever before it was totally red. But I found 50 competitors of ours, literally 50 named customers. And we ran Google ads against every single one of their names. All the way down the list from building automation specialty ones to oil and gas ones. We had 50 customers and we bought their name on Google and said, Meshify versus that platform <laughs> in the ad. And then we had a versus page for each one of them that would do a feature head to head against them. And so the acquirer found us through one of those ads, through one of the ads where they were looking at a bunch of different IoT platforms. And they said, hey, we like this one, but hey, who's this Meshify who you know, is also in this space? And by the time we did sell the company, when we were going to trade shows at that point, I mean, everybody in the industry knew us. I don't know mm -hmm. how many of the customers knew us, but everyone in the industry was would look at us and be like, you're those guys. <laughs> <laughs> you're those guys that have been all over Google with our name. That's funny. Um, so I think now Google has some rules about if you can actually show their name in the, mm. in the ad. 
um, you can still buy against other people's names, yeah. but I don't think you can put their name in your ad yeah. anymore. Um, anyway, but that was a hack that I think brought us customers and ultimately that, so that co- company that bought us became a customer. Uh-huh. So they were a customer for about a year mm-hmm. before they ended up buying the company. Got it. And when they were interested in buying the company, you know, they just approach you and say, we want to buy your company. How did the process go? No. So that's also a really fun story. <laughs> um, we looked and said, what's next for our company? We had a strategic offsite meeting mm-hmm. and we said, well, we need to go out for a series, a uh, round of funding in 2016. Mm-hmm. So we compiled our list of, of potential investors. And it turned out that this customer had, um, built a strategic venture capital arm only in the last year or two before that. And so they had a San Francisco office, they had their sign out, we're, vent- we're strategic money. So we went and knocked on their door. We called, we talked to our contact first at the, at the company and said, Hey, how are things going with our product? Of course, Oh, it's going great. We like it. Well, Hey, we're raising more money for our startup. Can we meet your venture capital arm? Mm-hmm. And they said, sure. Um, here's their email, blah, blah, blah. They connected us. We flew out to San Francisco and we met with their venture capitalists as part of our fundraising process. It turned out in early in mid 2016, in the early summer, we had gotten an out of the blue sort of offer to sell to buy the company from another company, and it was a to be honest, not a great offer. It was um, a company that was public but traded on pink sheets. Mm-hmm. For those that aren't familiar, that means they're basically too small and junky to make it onto a real public stock market. So they had about 20 million in revenue, and they were based in San Jose, but it was an offer to sell and. We would have done okay with it, but not fantastic. So it wasn't a super compelling offer. But we go to meet this, um, you know, we're going out to raise funding and we go to San Francisco and we meet uh, the strategic venture capital arm and we do our whole pitch. We do an hour meeting, great discussion. At the very end, I say, and, you know, just so you know, we do have an offer on the table to, to you know, buy the company. And it was like, like all of a sudden, like silence and everyone looks at each other and looks across at us and... I, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect like <laughs> such a dramatic moment. And the the venture capital, the strategic venture capital arm, her, uh, her name's Jacqueline. She's stopped and she said, are you going to take it? <laughs> and we said, you know, we came here to pitch you because we're looking to raise money. So, yeah. you know, it's not our intention to take this offer. We just wanted you to know it's on the table. And, um, you know, we're trying to raise this money because we want to grow the business bigger, blah, blah, blah. So we're not planning on taking it, but, you know, it's there and it's, it's nice to be asked. And, and they, so they started asking more questions. Who is it? What kind of offer is it? And we wouldn't, I didn't tell them anything. I was like, look, it's a Bay Area public company. I, I, I can't say anything more than that. Mm-hmm. And um, which was all true, but, you know, probably not what they imagined when I said Bay Area public company. So she stopped and said, look, would you sell this company like today? Would you sell it today? And I said, you know, we didn't build this company to pass it down to our grandchildren, if that's what you're asking. (laughs) So, I mean, we would entertain any type of discussion if you, you know, were interested in going going that route. And she said, well, promise me, this was like a Thursday. She said, promise me you won't sell the company before next week. And I'm like, well, that's okay. And like I said, we weren't planning on selling the company. It's an easy promise to make. We won't sell it until next week. So literally the next Tuesday, she and she got the CEO of the company and the CFO and uh, they brought five or six people. They all flew, flew to Houston. We actually moved our office o- over that weekend because, because of this event. Mm-hmm. My co-founder actually had to be out of town that weekend. He calls me on the Friday and he's like, look, we can't have them come see our 750 square foot office. <laughs> he's like, I think that they're either going to fund the company or they're going to buy the company. They've made that clear. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sorry I'm not there, but you should move the office. Oh, and so we moved it within the building. I went and talked to the landlord. He had an open space that was 3,300 square feet. Wow. And we had a really cool building in Houston, but we had a tiny little windowless office. And I was like, look, I want to move in. Here's the check. You have nobody in there. And he was like, okay, sure. Here's the key. And so we moved um, downstairs and bought $15,000 worth of furniture wow. in one weekend <laughs> to build, to do the entire office out. Crazy. And I had, yeah, everyone came and helped. And we, um, so we looked amazing. Everyone walks in and the CEO looked around for about five minutes. And as he's coming into the conference room said, well, I didn't know what I expected in Houston, Texas, but I didn't expect this level of, of San Francisco. That's what he said. And I think it really helped, but yeah. you know, who knows? So they ended up doing meetings all day with us that day. And at dinner that night, the CEO said, look, this is a company we want to buy. We want to make you an offer. I'm going to turn it over to my CFO from here and there's going to be a process. Incredible. And that's kind of how it went. And then there was a process. He was right. It mm -hmm. took about three or four months from there to get to closing. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So before we dive into what that process was exactly like, one thing I ask my guests is, um, when is the right time to sell? Yeah, so that's a great a great question. One thing that we got right with Meshify between my co-founder and myself is that we really were on the same page of what the goal with the with the company was. From the from when I first asked him to join me on the journey on this journey, like in 2010, I said, look. I'm making, I had had my first job, I was in my mid-20s, I was making $55,000 a year as an engineer. And I said, look, I'm, I've got 55000 a year. It's almost no risk for me to quit my company right now because this is almost no money. <laughs> I feel like we hustled to more money than mm -hmm. this when we were in our teens, you know? Like if we would were doing it full-time, we would have made more money than this then. I said, so the bar for us, it seems to me, is do better than we would have done on a corporate career path. If we can do better than we've done on a corporate career path, then how could you not call that a win? And mm -hmm. then count up everything that we'll learn along the way and all the people that we'll meet. And um, so that was our whole goal was just do better than we could do on a corporate career path. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a high bar. Yeah. Really. And we weren't, you know, we, of course we had visions and dreams of it being a huge company and we wanted that and everything. But when it came down to it, this offer totally satisfied the original assumptions or the, orig the original goal that we set out to accomplish. Mm -hmm to get a W on the board, to get a win on the board yeah, and to make it better than a corporate career path. And so when the offer came to that met those conditions, it wasn't that hard to say yes. Um, the other thing that was made it easy to say yes was like I said, we noticed the market was turning from blue ocean to red ocean. Mm. We saw that um, a mile away. We were highly involved in it. We were going to these conferences. So we knew about our industry and our competitors very deeply. Like I said, I ran those competitive ads. I, have always been on top of what's happening in the industry that I'm in. Mm -hmm. I think that really helped to make the decision and say, look, we've got big players coming in. We've got IBM, we've got Cisco, we've got Microsoft, we've got Amazon, we've got people spending 50 million a year on just marketing and av advertising to compete against us. So, you know, we're in Houston, Texas. What mm -hmm. are we going to do? Yeah. Um, it was a daunt it was daunting it was becoming a daunting industry to be a small company in i'll yeah. put it that way so you take this meeting that this this company comes flies to you your houston your brand new houston office yeah with the the, the price tag is probably still attached to the furniture <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've got it you've got a nail that's pretty much what it was like and you know this is just after you guys got a acquisition offer from somebody else you know 
are you thinking this is it, or you know maybe we should try to find competitive offers from other people, or are you thinking um, we don't have time, the market's turning, we got to be quick about this? You know, wh- where's your head at? I definitely thought we wanted to either do this deal or, or get it off the table and move on with life, mm. um, so that we could keep focusing on the business. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be um, a situation where all of a sudden we were in love with the idea that we had to sell the company Mm -hmm. and now we go out and find competitive offers. In my opinion, the best deals are always when a acquirer buys a company, Mm -hmm. not when a company sells a Mm -hmm. company. So hopefully that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But they come in wanting to buy as opposed to you going out saying, hey, can I sell it? So we have somebody, we have them there. They want to buy the company. They're a big company with plenty of resources. Mm They've known us for a year. That's not something you just snap your fingers and come up with. So there was no um, legitimate, um, I don't think, option of saying, hey, let's go shop it. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't come up. But it did come up that, hey, let's make sure they're serious. Let's make sure that we um, get them fully engaged and that they are serious, so that we get a number that makes us and all of our stakeholders, our investors, and everybody pleased with this outcome. Mm-hmm. And if all that lines up, then let's go forward and do it. And so all that came together in about a week for from for the LOI. Wow. The first step is the letter of intent. Yeah. So they need to give they gave us a letter that's signed by us and them, non-binding, but basically spells out we'll buy the company for this much money. Mm-hmm. We expect you to stay on for these many years. Um, and there's different terms that can go into this letter of intent. But you want it to be as specific as you can mm-hmm. at that point because anything that's not that specific you can assume over the course of the, their due diligence period, which comes after that, it's going to get worse for you. Mm-hmm. So we were lucky to have built a great network of advisors, right? Our venture capitalists helped. Our attorneys were fantastic. Um, our advisors and uh, angel investors who were advisors also uh, who had been through these types of processes before. I mean, this is where that network really starts to show its value mm-hmm. um, in terms of just experience that you can't snap your fingers and get and you yeah. can't find on a blog, you know. <laughs> So you definitely don't want to do that alone, go through that process alone. I wouldn't want to. Yeah, it was it was a <laughs> it was a it was a tough process. I mean, yeah. it's emotionally draining. Yeah, um, long nights and sleepless nights of you know worrying about the company and also worrying about the deal at the same time. Yeah, you don't want to tell your people about it because it's not a for sure thing yet. So now you feel like you're hiding things from people that you care about and have worked with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a tough process to go through, and the more support and help you have from seasoned advisors and people around the company, the better, I think. How did your your advisors help you um, navigate the M and A due diligence process to allow you to continue operating the business? Because operating the business is a full time endeavor, due diligence is a full time endeavor. How did you yeah. guys split work between you, your advisors, and your co founder? Yeah, my co founder was amazing. He was the first resource that I could turn to to say, hey, I need you to really step up and run more things on the business side because I've got to run this deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the first resource. Our attorneys um, were great, came came to the rescue and, and we, you know, we talked about should we get a, should we get like a banker or should we get someone else involved to sort mm-hmm. of help this process? Our attorney said, hey, look, the deal's really not that large to need that. We can handle the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they were totally right. And so, you know, they were a big help. Um, and just understanding what's in the legal contracts, what considerations, um, you know, do we need to be thinking about, you know, what's normal? We don't, we don't have any clue what's normal, what's market, mm-hmm. you know, 
they do these things day in and day out. So they have a lot better sense of, of, you know, what works, what is in market, what's out of market for mm-hmm. sort of our size deal. Um, and then our advisors, I mean, nobody jumped in and like, uh, started answering the phones or anything, <laughs> you know, I don't think it's fair to expect that. Yeah. But you know, just, I think the main thing they did was just provide support and say, Hey, look, we're behind you. We believe in you. We believed in this company. However, this process works out, we're still going to be behind you. Mm-hmm. I should mention, um, during that week between when they came to dinner and when we got the LOI signed, we raised a convertible note round oh, interesting. from our investors. And why the reason that? the reason why was because we didn't have a ton of money in the bank. Mm-hmm. And we knew this process was going to take some amount of months and during which we're still burning cash mm-hmm. and which we're locked in. So once you sign an LOI, you're locked into a no-shop period, mm-hmm. which means both you cannot raise outside funding and you cannot go shop the company to anyone else. So they want you to be captive to this deal, which makes sense. They're putting resources into it. Mm-hmm. So... We knew that once we opened our books to them during due diligence, they would see our sort of weak position and they would sort of see, hey, look, these guys don't really have any other option but to mm-hmm. sell to us and the deal could get worse for us, right? So we told our investors, look, we're going to put a convertible note together at um, essentially it was half off the, the price of the, the deal. Wow. And said, if you'll put in, it was just 300000 but if you'll put in yeah. $300,000, it'll make us feel more comfortable where we can tell this acquirer if we need to go pound sand and we'll still be able to get come out of this and then go back to raising our a round mm-hmm. um and still have time to complete that right and so the our investors to their credit heard the story understood the story trusted us enough to put together three hundred thousand dollars in literally days like wow. literally a couple of days incredible yeah so i mean man i just I'm grateful to them to this day, but at the same time, you know, they got 90 day or whatever it was, 110 Double day, yeah. not quite that good, but 1.6 times in about that. Not yeah. bad. Yeah. So they got a pretty <laughs> good deal. <laughs> I'm curious in the LOI, was the acquisition offer kind of a fixed number or was it a multiple of, you know, revenue or EBITDA? No, no. I mean, the whole thing was not based on financials. And a lot of times these early deals are, are like that, right? Like mm. they're not a multiple EBITDA kind of deal. It's more what's the tr- strategic value to mm. the company. Um, so they came up with a number, their first number was low and we basically, you know, we were, had to sort of search our soul, but I, you know, I told my co-founder, I was like, you know, they don't, they don't put out their best number first. Obviously they're not going to do that. So I think we need to feel confident and tell them no on this. So we told them no. Um, they showed a lot of disappointment and, you know, whatever. <laughs> They're very good at what they do on the yeah. other side. You got to sure. expect that. But we ended up coming to a, a reasonable number. You know, it was a low eight-figure kind of exit um, for an early company. You know, in total, we only raised $1.3 million for the company mm-hmm. before we exited. So mm-hmm. low exit number or low amount of money raised, not that high of an exit. But overall, that means everybody made money. Yeah. Like we made money. The investors made money. Yeah. And the acquirer was able to pick up a company for a good deal, really. So I think it's a win-win-win all around for for this particular deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we stuck to our guns. We got the number up to what made us happier and our investors happier. And, and um, you know, we were able to, this is the other thing, we were able to use our venture capitalists as a bit of a stocking horse to say, like, look, like they would fund the company for more than this, you mm-hmm. know? Like, we can always go back to them and, and they'll, they want to put in more money. You know, they're a little torn about this whole deal anyway, so... You know, you got to give us something that makes sense to them. Having leverage seems important. Oh, man, yeah. You got to think through a million things. And just I had so many phone calls with um, advisors, with the angel investors, with the venture capitalists, and with our attorney 
just where you spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes just sort of talking through everything and they really help to shape your mind around it, you know, mm-hmm. of what the next step is. How did getting into the due diligence process of selling your company impact your day-to-day operations of running your business? It impacted them a lot and negatively. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I was totally distracted during that period mm-hmm. from being able to focus on customers, product, marketing. I mean, it almost, in my mind, I mean, I know that everyone else on the team was still doing stuff, so, but in my mind, it seemed like it went to a standstill because mm-hmm. I was just completely, you know, sort of sidelined. Um, so, huge distraction. Um, I think our revenue did flatten during mm-hmm. those three months. Um, so, yeah, you got to be really cognizant of that when you go into these, this process of the toll it's going to take on the company. Um, so, it's not without cost for sure getting into it. Mm-hmm. And according to the research I did when I went into it, about two out of three companies make it through from LOI to close. So mm-hmm. you got a little better than half chance, but still a huge percentage chance you don't close that deal for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Got it. If you were to consult your, your younger self, like knowing what you know now, you know, what advice would you, would you give yourself? I would say I would tell me at that time like be more bold about asking for more money for the company. Hmm. I think that they were going to buy it. I think they they knew they wanted it. It's easy to say now too, seeing that it actually worked out for them. Mm-hmm. Like the company has been a great buy for them. The revenue is way up, and it's you know it was a good buy for them, a good deal. So it's easy to say now, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I think they would have paid twenty um, percent more easily. It seems wow. like it feels like you yeah. know. So I would have probably said like be more bold. Yeah. Ask for more money for what you built. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, let's see. I mean, I think the the people you surround yourself with are so important. So the more good people you can get onto the team, the better. I think I I wasn't quite focused enough on the people. Hmm. Um, just really, really focused on recruiting and finding the best people to run the business. Mm-hmm. I was always sort of working in the business. And when I had time working on the business Mm. and I think I could have stepped out of the, in the business sooner and worked on the business sooner and, and got, try just, just try really hard to get the best quality people on the team, get them motivated, keep the vision going for them and let them really do the work. I had a hard time giving up the work, being an engineer by training and background. It was a hard transition for me going from individual contributor to manager to CEO. Yeah. And I think during the time at Meshify before we sold, I never made it fully to CEO. Mm. Once we sold and I had two more years to work for the acquirer and had a lot more people under me and a lot more resources to focus on, I think that's where I really developed into a CEO. Got it. That's good advice. Yeah. So the diligence process was, you said, three or four months approximately. Correct. Yeah. We signed the letter in June, July, maybe early July, and we closed in October or very beginning of October. So mm. July, Yes. Yeah. So about three months. What were some surprises that occurred along the way? Man, just the just how incredibly um, detail oriented they can get about stuff they say they don't care about, and also <laughs> just an an entity like that um, doesn't operate in a cohesive manner, right? It's more a bunch of individuals than it is one cohesive mind. So. I mean, we would take data that they had seen three different ways and have to show it a fourth and fifth way, you know, just because, I don't know, someone else asked for it, you know? So, um, yeah, that was a bit surprising, I'd say, to see, like, how 
how messy that could get in mm-hmm. a way. Um, but I mean, what else was surprising? That's a good question. Um, I think also just how, you know, how the people, some of the mid-level managers at a company like that can be really confused about what's happening. Right. And I didn't really fully appreciate that until I joined the team. And, but after looking back and now having some perspective, I see that during that, during that process, during the due diligence process, some of those people that were involved, they didn't totally grasp the strategic value of what was happening. They didn't, Mm. um, they weren't involved in some of the highest level meetings, but yet they were still asked to be on the due diligence team. Mm. And so, you know, just appreciating that not everybody is on the same page, mm-hmm. you know, at a big company like that. This Got is sort it. of the short answer. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's actually a good segue into my, my next question, which is around the transition into the company. Yeah. So after the acquisition is complete, you're now part of the acquirer. Yeah. We literally signed employment papers that yeah. we worked for the acquirer. So what was that transition like from owning and running your own company to now being part of a company that acquired you? It was a it was a gradual change. So I mean, to their credit, this company tried very very hard. The name of the company is HSB. They tried very hard to um, keep us independent and to let us keep running the business the way it had been. Um, and that they tried that as hard as they could, but it's just like their tentacles just reach out, and it's <laughs> not even from the upper level people. It's from everybody else in their gigantic organization. The tentacles just come right. And so even if the senior level management doesn't want it, things just happen, you know? <laughs> so I think it was gradual. At first, it was like not a lot has changed. Um, I do have a boss, you know, that's a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been reporting to investors, you know? So I kind of reported to my boss like I reported to my investors. I gave them sort of board level information and kind of expected to, you know, run the ship my own way. But... You know, the budgeting process was um, not as clean as I would have liked, right? So they just, they sort of wanted to just keep control of the money, basically, Mm -hmm. is to put it long and short of it. They wanted to keep control of the money. They didn't want to just hand over the money and say, hey, go take this money and use it for your company. They wanted to have some controls on that, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Of course, it's, you know, their money that they're investing and they want to see how it's being used. So that was the first real integration with them was probably just, you know, financial integration, like their books now being in, I, this, one of the things I missed right away was when they took over our books, I couldn't just turn to my QuickBooks, which is what we were using. I couldn't just pull up the financials anymore. Yeah. It was in some SAP system right. somewhere and I'd have to email somebody and be like, can I get a report? And then a few days later, maybe they'd be like, oh, I'll get around to it, you know? So it was not great from a financial management standpoint of trying to keep on top of the books. Yeah. Um, that was the first thing I remember. Um, but yeah. And then HR, HR was probably the next thing that was a big change, right? Like we were very used to doing everything. So we just hire people, we hire contractors, we hire mm-hmm. employees. If somebody's not working out, sorry, see you later. You know, like didn't happen all the time, but it does happen, especially with contractors. Of and when you're working now for their H- with their HR department at a company like that with thousands of employees, whew, that's a different thing where it's like, yeah. have you given them a, employee improvement plan like <laughs> what what's that can you train me on that i don't know what you're talking about so you know just there's some culture mismatch there yeah. um where it's like we have to get used to some new norms um yeah. this is what it takes to you know do things in a safe manner um from an hr perspective yeah so it sounds like there was a period of adjustment of going from lean and nimble to kind of a little larger and bureaucratic 
Oh yeah. Yep. That's put in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any last pieces of advice for entrepreneurs who maybe are or at one point might consider selling their company? Yeah, sure. I would say uh, for me personally, I've had no regrets. I think the things that I thought made it a good reason to sell at that time have in my head totally held up. There's been continual new investment in, our, in the space of IoT. Um, I moved to Austin as part of the deal, which has been fantastic into a more tech-centric ecosystem like from Houston. So I'd say one, this, this whole career path can work. Mm -hmm. That's one thing to think about. Like if you're worried about, you know, how this can work out, can it ever work out? Like it did, it can, it worked out for us and it's been fantastic. It's been life changing, um, for my family and for me and my co-founder and a whole bunch of other people. Um, so this can work, stick with it, um, build a great business, build a business that um, really serves customers and focuses on their needs um, because ultimately that's what the, co the company loved about our software and our business was that it met the use case that they were trying to solve for and they, saw, they didn't see it anywhere else in a, ready, in a readily available package, you know, and they looked, they looked far and wide. So focus on your customers and build something that they really value and need in their business. And if you focus on those things, then I think some of the other stuff, which seems like dumb luck in a way, can end up happening because you focused on the right things, right? So Awesome. Dane, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun.